The scripture text for today's sermon is Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, I pray that you would work this sermon in me that it would come true in me and also in the pastoral staff and in the elders. And I pray that it would come true for the members, the covenant members of Bethlehem and all who hear my voice. That's a huge request. That the relational culture described in those verses that Jonathan just read would happen in us in new dimensions beyond what we thought were possible. So whatever kind of dying it requires, let us die. Grant that we would be this text. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is the third and final message in this little series on the relationship between baptism and church membership. It arose out of a desire, the series did, out of a desire to help us forward as a church in resolving how church membership relates to those whose biblically informed conscience after study doesn't arrive where I did last week. That's the controversy. That's the issue. How church membership relates to those people who hear last week's sermon and say, not persuaded. Last week I tried to show from Scripture that baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as a dramatization of union with Christ in His death and resurrection to walk in newness of life. That was what I tried to do 
I believe that. All the elders here are committed to believing and teaching that truth about baptism and not any other because we think that's what the Bible calls us to teach. Two weeks ago, in the first message in this little series, I tried to make the case that the local church is hugely important, just like baptism is hugely important, and that the local church is an expression of the universal church or the global church or the trans-historical church of all those who are God's children through Christ. So, not to be baptized is a very serious matter, and excluding a believer from the church is a very serious matter. And those two truths have created the tension that we're dealing with. For the last five years or so, the elders have pondered how can baptism and church membership both be honored in a way that retains the biblical importance of each in regard to this matter? So practically, the question becomes something like this. If the elders interview a person for membership whose understanding of baptism is wrong and everything else about that person's life and faith points to their being truly born again, can any exceptions be made in the membership requirement for baptism at this church as part of the membership expectation? Some of us would say that that would compromise the New Testament command for baptism and would simply endorse disobedience. It's that simple. Others of us would say that excluding a genuine, born-again believer from membership in the local church compromises the New Testament meaning of the church as an expression of the universal body of Christ. And those differences are pervasive in this church. If we would have a stand-up, sit-down vote, I have no idea what percentages would be, but they wouldn't be anything like uh, preponderance on either side. There would be a huge division of the house on that issue at Bethlehem. That's where we are. I've tried to speak the two sides fairly. It might help to make it a little clearer what the issue really comes down to if I give you a few other examples of how doctrine and practice at Bethlehem relate to church membership, other doctrines and other practices that we might have disagreements about and how they relate to church membership. Now, one of the assumptions of the elders, I think it's a right assumption, a very important assumption. One of the assumptions of the elders is that requirements for being an elder at Bethlehem are doctrinally very, very high. We have a 12-page doctrinal statement that all elders heartily embrace. And the second part of the assumption is that doctrinal expectations for church membership are very low and should be very low. 
for this reason. When a person is born again out of any culture or any lifestyle, they are born again into a family. And should, as soon as possible, be in a family. There cannot be inserted in between a seminary curriculum in which they learn all the fine points of systematic theology or simple, basic, doctrinal theology. You're going to constantly be putting off membership because who can define how, how much you have to know in order to be a part of a church? And so I think it's built into the nature of the family dimension that membership in the church has very low standards. in terms of doctrinal understanding. We assume, therefore, that being a church member means there will be lots of mistaken ideas about God in the church. Lots of mistaken ideas about salvation in the church. There are mistaken practices that go with those mistaken doctrines. Because practices and doctrines always go together, and so there are going to be a lot of people doing stuff in the church that the elders say, you shouldn't be doing that. Because that's what baby Christians do. And Paul wrote to First Corinthians, to Corinthians the first time, and to, to the Hebrews, whoever wrote Hebrews wrote it. And in both of those, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3 of First Corinthians, and chapter 5, verse 11 to 14 of Hebrews, both say to people in the church, you're still babies. You ought to be grown up by now. Assuming they came in as babies. And they're not getting it yet. They're not they're growing fast enough. And so the assumption there is there are a lot of babies in the church. And the babies don't understand as much as they should. And don't practice as godly as they should. And good grief, this is a motley crew. Of course the church has a bad reputation. It's full of baby Sinners, and I mean, they're pretty mature sinners, actually, and baby Christians. Here are a couple of examples. Um, we on the eldership believe powerfully, deeply, strongly in a vision of manhood and womanhood called, for lack of a better term, complementarianism. Meaning simply that in the home... Men, husbands, should be humble, kind, patient, loving, strong, leading, protecting, providing, teaching leaders of their wives and children. Heads, we call them, heads. And the wives should be happy about that, endorsing that, and blessing that. We call that submission. And in the church, we believe that men not women, are called to be the Christ-like, humble, strong, loving, teaching, responsibility-bearing, enemy-facing elders in the church. That's very controversial. And we're totally there as an eldership. That's on paper. You don't have to believe that to be a member of this church. You can be egalitarian to the core and join this church. You're just going to hear complementarianism over and over and over again because that's what the role of an elder is. 
You take people wherever they are on these kinds of things and you try to persuade them. It's in the book. And then if it's in the book, okay, must be good for my marriage and this church. And then you grow up into it. We don't put a guard at the front door saying only complementarians coming into this church. No way. That would be an awful way to define the body of Christ. That's where we want the body of Christ to go and grow. But a baby Christian, this woman who's 45 years old, been single all of her life, runs a bank, egalitarian to the max, gets saved. Can she join? Yes, of course she can join. Other examples. You don't have to believe in unconditional election. Total depravity, irresistible grace, definite atonement of Christ, perseverance of the saints, absolute sovereignty of God. And the elders love those doctrines. We would die for them in a minute. And you don't have to believe any of them to be a member in this church. Take a deep breath. You see where this leads? As a member of this church, you can be wrong on election. You can be wrong on the power of sin. You can be wrong on the extent of the atonement. You can be wrong on the power of grace. You can be wrong on perseverance. You can be wrong on the sovereignty of God, but you can't be wrong on baptism. Should you be able to be wrong on baptism? That's the issue. So that's where we are. Now, I have a few minutes to address this one more time. What would you say if you finished this sermon? I just wonder how you'd go about this. If you had 15 minutes now, and I said, you finish the sermon. I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to... You figure this out. I don't know what you would do. I said, I prayed a lot about this. They prayed for months about this. I knew this. I knew this series was coming in April, and and I have sought the Lord, and I th- I think I know where He wants me to go and and us to go, on on this, and it, it might surprise you, and and uh, so give me, if you would, your ear. I think that what we should do, what what. Elders should do, like me now, who have responsibility here for leadership, is to step back from the micro issue of that and, and look at the macro issue of Bethlehem. The macro issue of relationships. The macro issue of a relational culture at this church. The, the question should be asked, okay, not what button can you push to just fix it? but rather what process or kind of community life can you nurture in which wisdom would be birthed that in due time would amazingly beyond all expectation draw this church together in an answer to that question. So that's where I'm going to try to go. I want to talk about the cultivating 
of a process of life together. That, that's an awful phrase. I wrote that down and I thought, that is so sterile. Uh, cultivating of a process of life together. I don't like the phrase. I'm stumbling. I'm, I'm groping for words that aren't worn out here on what I'm, I'm after. Uh, so I'm, I'm hitting on this phrase, um, relational culture. I got the word culture from John Bloom. I was bouncing these ideas off of him Friday morning. Uh, John's the executive director of Desiring God, and John's so wise. He's just wise way beyond his years. Very helpful to me. And, and we were talking about the culture of Bethlehem and what it needs. And that's what I'm talking about. So when you think culture, don't think, you know, big global thing, but, but just think ethos, is that helpful? Atmosphere, spirit, esprit de corps. I mean, whatever word works for you to try to capture the, the non-definable air we breathe as a people when we're together or in our small groups or in Sunday school classes or in committee meetings or in worship services or hanging out afterwards. What is this? What is it like? And what should it be like? Because it seems to me God cares a lot about that and He has ordained that there be a kind of relational culture in which He has ordained for wisdom to be birthed. I think that relational culture would be marked by an intentionality and a radically servant-like, other-oriented, thoughtful, outgoing, humble, thankful, aggressively concerned and caring, moving into the lives of others, not moving away from others, committed to the hard work and the sweet rewards of growing relationships. as the flavor I'm talking about. The culture I'm talking about. Discerning wisdom in how to relate baptism and church membership, discerning that micro-issue, I think, has to be moved toward by moving toward a macro-culture, a macro-atmosphere, spirit, among the people in which... They don't just say, que sirrah, sirrah, we like each other so much, those differences don't matter. But rather, in which supernatural wisdom is awakened. Let me show you where I get this idea from the Bible. Colossians chapter 3. That is the idea that a way forward is to... Not focus on the micro problem, but the macro culture of the church assuming a certain kind of church culture gives rise to wisdom that solves problems that seem unsolvable. Okay, here we are at Colossians 3. We're going to start in verse 16. I'm going to pinpoint the phrase that drew me to this text. So why did you choose this text out of the whole Bible? Because as I was pleading with the Lord for help, 
my attention was drawn to a phrase in this verse. It goes like this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. And here's the phrase. In all wisdom. That's the phrase that arrested my attention. At the immediate level of issue, that's what we need, right? We need that. Let me pause here with a little kind of Old Testament parenthesis. Tell you a story. You know the story. It's really enjoyable to talk about this story because it's so absolutely amazing. The most practical, down-to-earth, in-your-face, on-the-ground, nitty-gritty, gutsy story about the gift of wisdom is in 1 Kings 3. And Solomon has just become king. And he asks, the Lord comes to him, and, and the Lord says, what would you like me to give you? Remember that? Ask what I shall give you, it says. And in 1 Kings 3, 9... Solomon says this, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this great people. And the next verse says, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said this. This has had a huge effect on me over the years and the way I pray, the way I think about life. Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none will be like you before you and none will be like you after you. And then comes the story immediately to illustrate how it happened. Two prostitutes get pregnant. They both have a baby. No bassinets, I suppose, in those brothels. So they take them to bed with them. And one of them smothers her baby during the night. She wakes up, realizes her baby is dead. She hears the other little baby still alive. Takes her baby, quietly puts the dead baby, takes the live baby, goes back to bed. When they wake up in the morning, the mom who had the live baby sees the dead baby and then looks closely. That's not my baby. That's her baby. How they got access to the king, I have no idea. It's irrelevant to the story. The story is to illustrate Solomon's incredible because he prayed. He gets divine help. So they come to Solomon and they tell the story and they say, solve this. <laughs> and you can imagine Solomon at this point saying, I wasn't there. There aren't any witnesses. What do you expect me to do? You could imagine that he would say that. And what did he say? He said, bring me a sword. <laughs> Out of the blue. Really? 
And they bring the sword. And he says, divide the living child in two and give half to one mother and half to the other. And the true mother said, this is 1 Kings 3.26, O my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put it to death. And Solomon said, give the living child to this woman and by no means put him to death. She is the mother. That's what's got to happen in this church. Where does that come from? (laughs) Where does that come from? It comes from God. What kind of community is that kind of gift regularly given? Because, you know, this issue, baptism and church membership, isn't causing 99% of you to lose any sleep at all. But other things are in your life equally perplexing to you. This is not a small little gift I'm after here. This gift of community, wisdom and discernment and the the pouring out of divine light on our minds so that we see through imponderable circumstances. Back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. All I have time to do here now is to point to maybe five or six features of the relational culture in which abundant wisdom is awakened, is given. Maybe one other parenthesis, a little one. So many of us have the notion that wisdom is a very individual and private thing and, and a pretty intellectual thing. It's neither of those in the Bible. Listen to this word from James chapter 3, verse 13 and 14. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That's a very strange way of talking. If you have an individual and intellectualistic notion of wisdom, let, let him show his works in the good conduct and the meekness of wisdom. Hmm. Next verse. But if you have bitter jealousy, if that's the mark of the culture, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast or be false to the truth. That is not the wisdom that comes down from above. In other words, there is an amazingly interwoven connection between being a wise people and being free from boasting and jealousy and selfish ambition. So you can see why what I'm doing here in these last few minutes is saying, oh God, grant that the relational culture of this church would move forward to the point where its meekness and its humility and its servanthood, its moving toward people, not away from people, would be such that the meekness of wisdom would be poured out, would rise up. 
So here are those traits that I simply see, and you can see them as easy as I can, and I'll just point you to them, because if they're in the Bible, I think they'll get some traction in your heart, and you can pray with me toward them. Verse 15, first mark of this relational culture that I'm talking about is peace. Let the peace of Christ, peace of Christ, not yours, not any old ordinary peace, the peace that he leaves with us, the peace of Christ, rule in your hearts, arbitrate, like a, like a judge at the end of a race, in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body. Now that peace has, I think, just been described in its dynamic in, in verses 12 to 14. Because what it takes for peace to hold sway is gospel-rooted forgiveness and forbearance. And those are the two words in those two verses, 12 to 14, those several verses. Forgive one another. What verse is that? Verse 13. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So the gospel, Christ forgives based on his blood and righteousness. He lets our sins go. And we take that glorious experience filled with gratitude, turn to those who make us so mad, and do it to them. And that's peace. If the gospel isn't working that way, day in and day out, we won't have peace. Or if we do, it'll be so artificial. That's the first thing. A gospel-rooted, forgiveness and forbearance-based peace. Number two, verse 15 at the end. And be thankful. Such a short phrase. for such an incredible transformation in a church. Oh, what a spirit is felt in a family and a church when the predominant note struck is thankfulness. The opposite is grumbling. And Paul said in Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling. Do all things without grumbling. So be thankful, don't grumble. So simple, huge. It's the gospel that makes the difference. There are lots of things in life that are worth grumbling about. Your personal life and our nation and the world. And the Bible says do all things without grumbling. There must be some... Miracle going on here, rooted in the gospel, where you don't take lightly evil and you don't take lightly frustration. You just are so overwhelmingly thankful that it doesn't become the predominant note of your life or the church or your small group. You don't get together and bellyache about stuff. You get together. Talith and I have such a Good time at Pizza Hut today. I thought, didn't we tell it? I just thought it was so good because we tried something we've never done before. We said, let's see if we can think of an evidence of grace in every family member in our family. Sons, daughters-in-law, nieces and nephews, and a few pastors thrown in. And I suppose we took 15 minutes maybe. Back and forth, not on... 
things that get us upset, but places where we see God at work for good. Now, if that became the note of a family, the note of a church, what an amazing, fertile ground would be there for wisdom to land or rise. I don't think he's throwing words away when he says, be thankful. You just got to know the gospel. You got to be blown away. If you're not in hell tomorrow morning, you should be dancing. We just have started to take it for granted. Number three, verse 16. This relational culture will be rich with the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Everywhere you turn in this church, if this relational culture happens, everywhere you turn, you're going to hear the word of God. You can hear people talking about their morning devotions or last night's devotions or what they remember from last week or what they heard in the sermon or what they heard on the radio. And the word of Jesus could be everywhere. When people start talking about stuff and Jesus hasn't been mentioned in the small group for five or ten minutes, so it's just going to overflow with a Jesus word. It works like this. I'll tell you the word. I went, I went told Noel, I rode my bike this morning for whatever hour, 40 minutes. I just wanted to blister my body this morning. It's the only thing that works for me when I'm... You don't need to hear all this, but... So I came back, took my shower, and... And I said, I'm going out, still in the swing, with my Bible and a Diet Pepsi, and uh, be out there with the dog. And I read a lot of Bible. I just like to soak. Saturday morning's good soak time, so I'm soaking in Luke mainly. And I read the parable of the two sons. One single verse. If I were in a small group tonight, I am, right here I am, doing it. I'd find a way to say this verse because it has been so encouraging to me and I think it'll be encouraging to you. The elder brother says to the father who has welcomed home the prodigal, he says this, this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes. And you killed the fatted calf for him. (laughs) Isn't that glorious? Isn't that incredible? I mean, what words could have more weight? He took your money. He bought prostitutes and lay with them your son. And when he came home, you killed the fatted calf for him. Period. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So you you just, everybody's doing that. Everybody's doing this. They're going to the Bible in the morning, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, an hour, whatever you've got, and you're 
desperate for a word. And he gives you a word like that. Out of five pages of Luke, he gives you that one word. It's all you need. You can't even remember the other 50 verses that you looked at. And everywhere you go, you're telling people, you know what? You, let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you the kind of God I've got. You see that at work? Wouldn't that land on people at work pretty interesting? I know a, I know a, a dad. And then you drop on him later. It's God, by the way. That's what I mean. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Be enriched and then flow. Number four. In the middle of verse 16, this relational culture will be pervaded by teaching and admonishing one another. Now, that's almost the same as what I just said. But we underlined that phrase this time and not the word of Christ. Teaching and admonishing one another. So the point there is worship services are great. I love them. So much of my life is given to me in these services. So I wouldn't say anything to minimize the magnificent value of corporate worship under the Word by the Spirit. Mm, I love it. However, that's not what this is talking about. And if that's all you have in your life, here, one hour, hour and a half, you are really cutting yourself off from the relational culture that is being spoken of in these verses, namely, teaching and admonishing one another. Two small group training times coming in August. Because small groups are essential to normal church life. God bless church life. More on that in a minute. Number five. At the end of verse 16, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This relational culture is predominantly a happy culture. It says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Thankfulness. Heart, Godward. Those are the marks of non-hypocrisy. There are ways to sing that are not thankful, not from the heart, and not Godward. And we call it hypocrisy. <laughs> They're just singing. With their lips they honor me and their heart is far from me. And this relational culture is the heart is bursting with gratitude for the gospel and the heart is going Godward and it's going Godward sometimes through the mouth with song. We're singing people. Small groups should be singing small groups. Families should be singing families. I do mean that. I don't think Talitha and Noel and I are the best of singers. We just sing twice a day. Make a joyful noise, it says. Number six. Last one. Verse 17. Sweeping as it can be. Whatever you do, 
in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything you do, every word that comes out of your mouth, everything you do with your hands and legs, mouth, in the name of Jesus. I think that means leaning on him and making much of him. So depending on him and magnifying him. He's just pervasive. He's just pervasive. There's no, you know, you, you go up into the sound booth, say, or to a committing meeting with the financial and property administrators. And in this culture, this relational culture, Jesus is going to be there. They're doing this in the name, name of Jesus. He's just there everywhere. This is not a secular organization. This is a Jesus-based, Jesus-exalting, Jesus-centered organization. Now, I'm, I'm closing. Two more paragraphs. Would you please, having heard just a glimpse, just a taste of what I think might bring us toward a resolution of the issue, if we could step back and get the macro-relational culture moving forward by a greater increase of Colossians 3 than it's ever had, maybe God would be pleased to grow wisdom in that relational Bethlehem culture that in a few years would have us totally on the same page with regard to those issues. And I'm going to ask you for for uh, prayer. When, when I get back from vacation, Tom Steller's preaching next week, C.J. Mahaney preaching the week after that. After that, two weeks of campus-specific preaching where each campus will have its own preacher to cultivate the vision of that campus. And then I'll be back at the end of, end of August. Please be faithful to these services and the church when I get back, we are on the pursuit as a staff of something new among ourselves. Because we thought, this was several months ago, we thought we can't, we can't really call the church to do very fruitfully what we're not doing. And therefore, we uh, brought in CJ and his wife to spend a morning with us you don't, most of you don't know who he is. That's okay. Just, I think, ahead of us in some important things. Better at some important things. And, uh, and out of that, we moved toward dividing the pastoral staff into five small groups. And we said to the pastoral staff, if you have to, ditch your small group that you've been in all these years at Bethlehem. Because we're going to do small groups as staff. Four couples in some, five couples in others. We'll appoint leaders. Over the, over the years or over the months, what I hope happens is that as we pastors get in each other's lives more intimately, more directly, more in your face, applying the Word of God, going deep at the roots of our issues, stories will start to filter out and the the church will be helped because their pastors are learning better 
how to get into each other's lives, nurture each other. We're a pretty scattered bunch on three campuses. We don't see each other weeks on end sometimes. That's a huge thing to pray about. I would like you to pray for me in particular. I'm spearheading this, trying to put the groups together, work on the leaders, make it happen. Um, I mean it with all my heart when I say pray for me because of this. Is there any reason to think that after 28 years of my leadership, And this relational culture not existing in this church to the degree that I think it should. Is there any reason to believe that in the last little chapter of my ministry things could change? I am the problem. You get my strengths and you get my weaknesses. Some of you love the strengths enough to overlook the weaknesses. Others don't. So this is not a small request. Can I do what I've just said should be done, namely lead this church to a new dimension, new level of relational culture that is not the way I am by personality? I'm a preacher. I'm a student. I default to solitude. So what's the hope that I could lead you to, to move toward people and not away from people? So we'll be, we're going to be done here in two minutes. How many of you will just make a beeline for your car? like I would if I just did my personality, rather than linger with an eye to somebody who looks like they might be new or lonely or needy and move toward them. Could I take the church there? Really? Maybe. If you prayed hard enough? Maybe. This is not, I'm not schmoozing you here. This is talking out of major issues that I'm aware of. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, I don't know whether this old dog is capable of the new tricks I've just been describing at a level beyond where he's been for these 28 years of leadership. I don't know. You know. You love this church. You love it vastly more than I do, and I love it a lot. I grieve over my failures to take it where it could be under a different kind of leadership. And so, Lord, I do ask for your help for me, for 
hundreds in this church are way too like me. And for our elders and for our pastoral staff, many of whom are wonderfully unlike me in this regard. And for our people as a whole. You see the relational culture of Colossians 3.12 to 17 vastly more clearly than I do and did. And I simply ask you as I did at the beginning, make this text happen in our church, I pray. We want to be servants of one another. We don't want to run away from each other. We want to move toward each other. We don't want to move toward comfort. We want to move toward need. This is what Jesus did. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and became a servant. That's the kind of mind, the kind of lifestyle we long for. I want to go to a new level, Lord, myself. I would like to take this people with me. So for them and for me, I pray in Jesus' name.